Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, my name is Professor Danny Selemeyer, and on behalf of Sydney Ideas, the Sydney Policy Lab, and the School of Social and Political Sciences, I'd like to welcome you to this evening's conversation on hate and race politics. I actually sat down early on Friday afternoon to think about how I wanted to open this event. And um, I'd already read Tim's book, and so I thought I might reflect on some of the um, thoughts that he had about how Australians are resistant to speak about racism or racial violence. And then my stepson came over and told me that there'd been a shooting in New Zealand. It's quite early in the afternoon. So I switched screens to Google News and I read about the massacre in Christchurch that was still in its early stages. And as I imagine was the case for so many people who are gathered here tonight, the world shifted. Uh, more specifically, my relationship with the topic for tonight moved from being a matter of concern to being a matter of what it meant to live on the planet. As part of my opening remarks, I'd planned to remind everybody that today is the 21st of March, which is the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And I was going to tell people in case they didn't know that most of the time, uh, international days mark some positive event like the ratification of a treaty or the adoption of a treaty. But the 21st of March uh, was a more solemn day. It marked a massacre in 1960 of 87 people who were peacefully marching in Sharpeville in South Africa against apartheid. Uh, when the UN declared the 21st of March the International Day for, racial dis for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination on that day, I think it probably did so in the hope that recalling us to remember that day would have us act differently, that there would be a preventative effect through our reflexive act. But when I contemplated that aspiration on Friday, hope was quite difficult to hang on to. I think it's impossible to sustain the illusion anymore that an act of craven racial violence that happened in 1960 belonged in some far-off era that we now commemorate because we're in a different time. In fact, the, the events, the racial violence over the last 10, 20 years has made that illusion pretty difficult to sustain. But as of Friday the reality was right on our doorstep. So before we commence tonight's events, I just want to take a few moments together to be present in solidarity with the women, men and children who died last Friday, with the families and communities who are left in inestimable grief, and with the people who, particularly Muslim people, who now live in fear. So I'll just have just a few moments to be in silence. Thank you. There is no fully making sense of what happened last week or in the other acts of racial violence that preceded it. But we do have to think about it. We do have to grasp the nature of a world that could produce such acute acts of violence. And we have to have a way of talking about it. Not so that we can contain it in the neat box of explanation, 
but so that we can begin to act differently collectively. And I think in this regard, we're really blessed to have with us as our conversation partners tonight, two people who can help us do that thinking. People who have both thought a great deal about racism and racial violence and the politics of hatred, and have not only thought about it, but who have lived that thinking in their working lives. So our first speaker is Tim Supamasan. Tim recently joined this university and specifically the School of Political and Social Sciences as a professor of practice, our first professor of practice. He's also working with the vice chancellor on issues of diversity and multiculturalism at the university. Uh, Tim's an outstanding political theorist and a very renowned human rights activist. Between 2013 and 2018, he was the Australian Race Discrimination Commissioner. And he's also written a number of books before this one and has really affected the way that we think about national identity, multiculturalism and patriotism. Uh, he's going to be in conversation with Osman Faruqi. Osman Faruqi is the deputy editor of ABC Life and he's a regular presenter on ABC's arts and culture program, The Mix. He was a founding member of Member Diversity Australia and was formerly news and political editor at Junkie News, Junkie Media, I'm sorry. He's reported for the ABC's flagship investigative documentary program, Background Briefing, and he's written for a number of outlets, including SBS and Mianjin. The evening after I sit down will proceed as follows. Tim's going to speak for about 15 minutes, followed by a conversation between Tim and Osman for about 40 minutes. To finish the evening, my colleague Lisa Fennis of the Sydney Policy Lab will make some closing remarks. So I'd like to ask Tim Supamasan come and, um, and speak to us for about 15 minutes. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Danny, for that introduction. And thank you, everyone coming this evening. And I would also like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of nation and pay my respects It's past, present. The topic of tonight's conversation is drawn from a book that I wrote, which was published last month on hate. And I wrote that book shortly after completing my term at the Australian Human Rights Commission, where I was race discrimination commissioner. And it was a, an occasion for me opportunity for me to reflect on five years race relations in this country. Back in 2013, when I took on post, I had anticipated that there'd be some heated debates about racism and free speech. I knew perfectly well that the government elected had made it an election promise to repeal part of the Racial Discrimination Act. That was part of their election platform. So I understood that there was going to be a debate about that. What I didn't anticipate was that we'd have not one, but two attempts to repeal part of the Racial Discrimination Act. I did not expect Pauline Hanson to be elected to the parliament yet again. I did not expect to see in our Australian parliament white supremacist slogans being introduced as the subject of motions. I did not expect there to be calls from some of our elected representatives for the mass internment of Muslims in Australia. I did not expect that we would have mass panic and hysteria being generated on issues including African crime. I didn't expect that we would have such a deterioration 
in our public debate on race, multiculturalism, and immigration. Make no mistake, race politics is back in Australia. And today, as we mark the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, it's essential that as a society, we renew our commitment to anti-racism and equality, that we rededicate ourselves to ridding our society of prejudice, intolerance, and bigotry. Because if we don't get this right, and end up with ugliness and violence. I think the events of Christchurch last Friday really hit home for us, not only because of our proximity, closeness with New Zealand, but also, of course, because it was an Australian who committed that terrorist attack. Australian committed white supremacist and eco-fascist ideas. I would have hoped that those events would have prompted from our leaders and others some reflection about the conduct of our politics and media. It's very clear to me that there's still some way to go just to process what has happened, what we need about it. Part of this involves understanding how the rise of racial politics has occurred in Australia. Where has this new hate emerged from? Now, it depends on how far you want to go back. I'm sure some of you might think, well, it really goes back to the 1990s when we had the introduction of mandatory detention with respect to asylum seekers. Some of you might say, well, perhaps it came in 1996 with the election of Pauline Hanson to the parliament the first time and the response some parts of the political class to one nation. Referring specifically here, the response of the Prime Minister at the time, who said of Pauline Hanson's maiden speech, which she said that she believed Australia was in danger of being swamped by Asians. What, what then Prime Minister John Howard said in response to that was, I respect her freedom of speech, or Pauline Hanson enjoys freedom of speech. No condemnation of that, just a signal that the pall of so-called political correctness had been lifted. But if we're to look at more recent political history, I believe we can pinpoint a number of events which have contributed to the rise of hate and race politics. I go back to those debates about the Racial Discrimination Act and recall in 2014 when the then Attorney General George Brandis sought to repeal Section 18C he did so justifying it in the following way, telling in the parliament people that they had a right to be bigots. Now, if you signal to people that you have a right to express bigotry, then you shouldn't be surprised that people then conclude that their free speech includes hate speech. I think as well of the various uh, manifestations of a normalization of hatred in our media. The fact that there are some ideas which only a, a decade or two would have been regarded as completely out of bounds are now being accepted as part of ordinary political debate. I mean, the mass internment of Muslims is an idea that's aired in our public debate. The idea that we should 
remove our non-discriminatory immigration policy and eliminate, for example, immigration from African countries or from Muslim countries. These ideas would have been dealt with swiftly and emphatically not long ago, but now they're left to stew in our political debate and discourse. There is perhaps a more cultural challenge that we have to deal with. Politics, media, they have some responsibility for all this, but our society at large bears some responsibility too. And frankly, we still struggle with talking about race and racism in this country. Just think of this very day, the 21st of March, and how we mark this day in this country. The rest of the world knows it very simply as the UN International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. But in Australia, for the past 20 years or so, we commemorate it as Harmony Day. That says that we struggle to even name racism even when the rest of the world is talking about it, even when there's permission to talk about racial discrimination. As Danny pointed out, the provenance of this day lies in the massacre that occurred in apartheid South Africa against people who were protesting against racial segregation. That's a long way away from potluck lunches, Harmony Day celebrations. We also are in the habit of deflecting discussions about racism. So very often, you can't even talk about racial discrimination because someone will interject and will tell you, but things are so much worse elsewhere. Why are we talking about this problem in Australia? Why aren't we talking about racism in Japan or China instead or in other countries? As though racism was something that was of relative damage, that so long as Australia is relatively good at multiculturalism or tolerance, you needn't worry about racism. I think it's cold comfort for anyone who experiences racism to be told that, well, at least you're not in another country. So how do we deal with all of this? As I said, I, I hope that there can be a rededication of efforts on anti-racism. We've heard a lot of political rhetoric about Christchurch past few days. If our leaders were serious about dealing with the scourge of racism, far-right extremism, they should deal with the causes of hate and race politics. They should work on the fundamentals. They could, for example, fund a strong national anti-racism campaign. We spend tens of millions of dollars in Australia today on awareness and education campaigns for smoking, seatbelts and road safety, for domestic violence. And yet, at the moment, federal level in Australia, we spend close to zero on anti-racism. We have not seen any dedicated spend federal government on anti-racism since 2012. If politicians were serious about dealing with hate and race politics, they could also strengthen hate speech laws in this country. 
We know how difficult it is to hold racism to account. And there are aspects of how our hate speech laws operate which could be beefed up sure that all Australians enjoy the proper protection against racial hatred and incitement to violence. We also need to ensure that media in this country hold far-right other extremists to account in the way that they should. All too often, we are seeing extremists enjoying free time in our national media, not being properly scrutinised. And it's very clear that far-right elements internationally are becoming more sophisticated at concealing or disguising their ideas and doctrines so that they appear benign and reasonable. It's okay to be white. That's an example. Sounds perfectly benign and reasonable, but not when you understand that it's a slogan used by extremist groups to rally people to the cause of racism and racial supremacism. Finally, a point about what's at stake. Often when we talk about racism, we can believe that it matters only to minorities in our society, that we should care about racism because there are some people in Australia who may be vulnerable to experiencing hatred or discrimination. That's true. We know there are some groups in our society who experience racism at much higher rates than others. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people from non-English speaking backgrounds or non-European backgrounds. But we must not lose, the sight, lose sight of the fact that combating racism matters for all of us and it matters because racism diminishes us all as a society. It is a direct attack on our democratic values, the value of justice, on the value of equality. And indeed, right now, it's an attack on democracy itself. It was those who are agitating on the far right and who are spreading ideas of white supremacy are doing so in the hope of replacing liberal democracy as we know it, a system of government where non-discrimination matters, where people can be treated equally, regardless of their race or their religion. That is the attack, the assault on our system of government that is occurring at the moment. And it's the responsibility for all of us to make sure that we respond in the right way. We see this as an obligation of our citizenship. See, democracy. When democracies collapse, let's remember. They don't collapse because something external comes and replaces it. It can collapse from within. The danger we have at the moment is that any outburst of nationalist populism won't simply just be a venting of cultural or racial anger. It may not just be some anger that we need to let out of the system. It could, if we're not careful, be a prelude to something else, prelude to fascism. And that's the challenge we have today. And I hope that all citizens and members of our society of goodwill can unite on this. All too often we hear from some voices that the real division on race issues comes from anti-racism, 
and those who speak out against racism and bigotry. Let's be absolutely clear. Real division comes racism self. Thank you. Tim, thanks so much for those comments starting off. It's fair to say that when this event was first planned and discussed a few weeks ago, we had a different conception for what we would want to talk about. But I think it's obvious to us and to everyone else that the events last Friday in Christchurch, as well as the media and political response to them, particularly in Australia, has become one of the most defining issues around this question of race and, and the reintroduction of race politics. In the past week, we've seen widespread condemnation of what happened. We've seen certain parts of the political community seek to blame elements of the Muslim community for what happened. And we've seen the handful of people who've spoken up and used this and, and suggest that this might be an opportunity to interrogate Australia's issue with race be quite sharply smacked down by sections of the conservative media. And on a, on a personal level, I find it hard to not despair that we're less than a week after the Christchurch attacks, sections of the conservative media have attacked you, they've attacked me, they've attacked prominent Muslim academics and commenters like Walid Ali and Randa Abdel Fattah. But given your experience and knowledge on these things, Tim, I want to ask you whether you were surprised by this reaction, whether you weren't surprised by it, what you make of it in general. Sadly, I'm not, I'm not surprised that it's played out this way. Of course, I hope that we would be in a different situation. But cast our minds back to last year and what happened between August and November last year because the circumstances there are uh, quite instructive. In, in August 2018, Fraser Anning gave his maiden speech in the Senate in which he evoked the language of a final solution being applied to immigration in Australia. Now, after that speech, there was widespread condemnation of Fraser Anning's rhetoric, and many in the media were anticipating that this would mark a new stance against bigotry and racism. I distinctly recall a front page of the Sydney Morning Herald declaring that in mid-August. Then two months later, Pauline Hanson moved it's okay to be white motion in the Senate. What happened? We had 23 government senators voting in support of the motion. In the space of just two months, he went from apparent consensus in condemning racism and bigotry to then an endorsement of white supremacist slogan, including by government senators. That was quite instructive for me which is why I would have had a degree of caution in thinking about how politicians right now would be responding to Christchurch. And, and already there are arguably signs that, as you've pointed out, that it's not playing out in the way that it should. As I said, if our political leaders resolved to deal with this emphatically, they could, have, they could, they could be looking at a national anti-racism strategy. They could be looking at beefing up hate wars. They could be looking at putting a final end to race politics. Yet just a few days after Christchurch, we saw Prime Minister Scott Morrison pivoting to a debate about immigration. 
Now, you can have a debate about immigration, but timing matters here. Signal matters here. While the country is still clearly very raw about what happened in Christchurch and is still reflecting on what it means for us, uh, for, for, for the government then to switch to immigration, there's a real risk of some dog whistling going on here. It may not be an overt appeal to race, but the pivot and the timing of the pivot says to me that we still need to be on guard against a race election this year. One, one of the things that some journalists who spent some time, Australian journalists that have recently spent time in Christchurch reporting on what happened there have made, and, and, and this is a line that's come from Hamish McDonald from The Project, Melissa Davey from The Guardian, who have been recently in Christchurch for the past few days, talking to people, observing the political reaction. They've come home and said that the distinction couldn't be more obvious. The fact that New Zealand appears to be uniting and wanting to respond to this in a political and social way, where Australia seems to be quite riven by division on just how to respond to this, let alone the broader questions. I wonder why you think that is. Is it to do with the political leadership or is it something to do about the nature of Zealanders versus Australians? Uh, I suspect it has a lot to do with political leadership or lack thereof. You have political leaders who are intent on setting the right tone, but you can get... Uh, clear acceptance from society that some questions must be regarded as, as being well beyond partisan divides. Um, early, earlier today, someone highlighted to me a statement that was signed by Malcolm Fraser, Bob Hawke, or Keating uh, on the need to, to banish racism our politics. In the 80s, right? This yeah. is in the 90s. This was 90s, in 1998. Right. There was a joint statement of some former prime ministers and Gough Whitlam too, I should add. So four prime ministers on. And that feels like a very different era. I mean, bear in mind too that the incumbent at the time, John Howard, didn't sign this statement. But uh, you had a generation or two of leaders understood perils and the evils of racial discrimination. Memories of the Second World War and the Holocaust still alive in some of those political moments. Memory of apartheid and South Africa still alive. And I don't believe that there's that same sense memory, historical awareness that exists in some of our political class today. So when you have that, and when you have politicians who believe that race and multiculturalism fair game, equal debate, that they can make appeals based on race for partisan advantage, then you, you have a slide. You can have a deterioration of standards, and I believe that's what we've had steadily for some time. I mean, there's one other, there's one other uh, example I want to note here, which is that We've had some of this debate before, very recently. Um, I'm referring to the Cronulla riot in 2005. I, th I think we had a period of introspection after that happened just over a decade ago, when I think the vast part of our society did say, you know, this is dangerous and we don't want to go down this path. But yet we seem to forget the lessons or forget the dangers of race politics very quickly. 
and I, and, and I do believe that political leadership is an absolute prerequisite, precondition for getting society to respond the appropriate way. I want to explore some of those historical uh, examples and get your perspective on them. But one question I want to put to you fairly directly, I guess, is it's been a question that's been debated in Australia over the last few days. The, the link or the lack of a link, perhaps, between the kind of rhetoric and the, and the tensions around race politics that have spread across the world, but also we felt them, and you've talked articulately about them here in Australia, the link between the rise in rate politics, race politics what we see from politicians in the media and the events we saw in Christchurch and the ideology behind them. Is there a link? And if so, what is that? I certainly believe there's a link between hate speech and political violence. Not all forms of hate speech will result in violent acts. Just about every violent act will have its source in ideas and in speech that's hateful. Violence doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Don't just wake up one day and decide that racial supremacist. It doesn't happen that way. It happens because your ideas about certain groups, as you believe that some groups are a threat, perhaps less human than you, less important, it happens because those ideas might be confirmed, stories, Depictions of groups, events, and how politicians respond to those events. Um, that's where political violence comes from. Now, I, I don't think you can say that any one particular politician can be responsible for political violence uh, short of them directly inciting it. But you don't need to have that direct link. There's an environment created all where, where, where violence can be entertained, justified and rationalised. And if there are, there's just one person or a group of people who believe they have the permission or believe that it's necessary to carry out an act of violence, then there's a connection. Um, so so, so uh, I, I think it's well established that hate speech can contribute to an escalate, or can be can escalate, contribute to political violence, and words matter. Words can be like bullets. Ask those who survived the Holocaust about their experience. They will say the Holocaust began. That again is a lesson history. In your book, you use this term stochastic terrorism. One of the things in the book I found both fascinating but quite haunting was that even though it was written and published before the events, it almost reads like it was influenced by what went on because it is so prescient. And I think when you, if you, you can explain this concept of stochastic terrorism, I think the audience will understand that what we saw on Friday is a pretty strong example of exactly that. Yeah, and it goes to this idea that if you have a, an environment where a signal sent society that hate is permissible may get some groups or some individuals who decide to act on that. Can't predict where it will come from, but the likelihood of it occurring goes up when hate increases in currency. Um, and, and I think this is a logic that exists in other contexts as well. Just, just think of uh, radical 
uh, Islamist terrorism, ISIS-style terrorism. That's the kind of connection or correlation that we're, we're talking about here. It doesn't need to involve an entire group of people subscribing to violence. If there's enough permission given, can't be surprised if sections of a group begin to give expression to their ideas in physical form. Political terrorism has obviously been a part of Australian discourse for a very long time. Some would argue that it started in 1788 with the formation of Australia in 1901, some of the first pieces of legislation passed what to do with race. But you write in your book that it has ebbed and flowed and there were periods where it wasn't used in the kind of way that it is now. And I'm interested to get your perspective on this current phase of politicized racism. Where did that come from? What was the, the breeding ground for it? Yeah, um, I mean, uh, I really focused my, my attention on the post-war years and years in Australian history since the advent of multiculturalism. I think there's a very clear picture that can be of colonial Australia and of the period from federation right through to the end of the white Australia policy. Um, you, you had legalised racism is, is the very simple description of that. And Australian nation, form of a federation, uh, really arrived in the form of a racial ideal. So the first two acts passed in the Commonwealth Parliament were the Pacific Islanders Act, which involved the expulsion of Pacific Islanders, and the Immigration Restriction Act, which made it possible to have the dictation test that was applied to non-European migrants who wanted to enter Australia. Um, but since the advent of multiculturalism, which really came in the 1970s and coincided with the adoption of multiculturalism in Canada, well, have had, to a large extent, a consensus, a belief from our political leaders and majority of our society that racial non-discrimination is a defining value of our society, that Australia could no longer be defined for or policy as a white Australia. Now, whether or not that has seeped into popular culture or to popular understandings of national identity is an open question and subject to debate. I'm, I'm really focusing on law and policy here uh, to a large extent. And this has been backed up by political rhetoric as well. So look through the debates we had in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, the 70s saw the introduction of the Racial Discrimination Act, which had the support of both major political parties. Though there were elements of liberal national parties who opposed that legislation, but it was only a, a small section of them, not enough to prevent the passage of war on this. 1980s, you really had the first definitive test of official multiculturalism and non-European immigration. So I'm thinking of the debate sparked by Jeffrey Blaney in the 1980s and by John Howard in the 1980s around Asian immigration. Now think of how... You think we passed that test? Well, I think at the time, we, we could have been justified in believing that we, we had. Because uh, John Howard was roundly condemned, not only by the Labor government of the time, but also by sections of the Liberal Party. 
Um, and it, the stance that John Howard took on Asian immigration was a major contributing factor to him losing the leadership of the Liberal Party. And then you think, and, and, and I think you can assume that there was, again, a general bipartisan consensus about, about all of this, uh, right through until 1996 when Pauline Hanson was elected to Parliament. And I think that's the moment that you saw, um, along arguably with the introduction of mandatory detention, first signs of that consensus really cracking. Once you allow for people to believe that freedom of speech permits you to, to, to propound or advocate for restrictive immigration policies directed at particular groups, then you've got a clear challenge to that consensus. So for me, I, I, I feel that historically speaking, it's the 1990s that, and, and, and the Howard years and the view that became formed around political correctness, free speech and national identity that, that had a certain potency in it, still has clear potency and is part of the ideological worldview too when they do express opposition to things like the Racial Discrimination Act or parts of the Racial Discrimination One of the narratives that we hear around the election of Hanson is that, well, yep, look, she was elected. She said these terrible things in her maiden speech, but she was expelled from the Liberal Party. The major parties united to deny her preferences. They cut her off. And it's not until 2016 that we see her re-emerge in, in federal parliament. What do you think about that perspective, that analysis of what happened then? Well, she was certainly in hibernation for a long time, uh, and, and she wouldn't arguably have come back had there not been a double dissolution election in 2016. And the fact that you didn't have double dissolution election for a long time meant that quota required to enter parliament was much higher. But once you dissolve, um, uh, once you have a double dissolution, uh, that quota comes down. Um, but, I, but I think it. One of the key factors in Hansen's resuscitation and return has been the complicity of the Australian media. To put it into simple terms, I think it would be very difficult to have seen Pauline Hansen come back had she not been given spot on Dancing with the Stars and had she not been paid to be a regular guest on the Sunrise Breakfast Program. And, and if you were to try and trace political trajectory of Hanson Mark II, as it were, um, she, was, she was there on sunrise not long after the, the Paris terror attacks. And that really gave her an opening that she otherwise wouldn't have enjoyed. I'm referring to the Charlie Hebdo attacks here. So if you piece it all together, I think it's undeniable that the platform she has enjoyed, commercial television, in particular Channel 7 and the Sunrise program, can't deny that that has had a profound impact in elevating her national profile and prominence and ensuring that she got enough electoral support to be elected to the Senate, along with three other of her colleagues. The question about the media is it is a live one again because the media is facing criticism from different quarters for its response to the Christchurch massacres, but also people 
reflecting on exactly what Tim talking about, what kind of has taken us to this point. But Pauline Hanson is now an elected senator. She does wield quite a, num- a lot of influence in federal parliament. Her candidates have been elected in various state parliaments. They could be elected at the New South Wales election. That's one nation. And then the far right activists themselves no doubt have influence on Australian politics right now. One of the arguments is that the media has a responsibility to talk about these people. We can't bury our heads in the sand. We can't pretend like they don't exist because they do. They attract votes, they attract supporters, and they end up voting on legislation. Do you think that argument holds up? Well, you should scrutinize ideas in democratic debate. So, 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 so yes, of course, you should look into these political actors and their ideas. But what you shouldn't do is give, give them a free run. What you shouldn't do is give them a soft platform where their views go relatively unchallenged. I mean, I, I thought it was remarkable that it took about three years before David Koch on Sunrise um, had the gumption to push back on Pauline Hanson and give her a direct challenge because that hasn't been happening. And that's what we expect journalists to do. Journalists are paid to ask hard questions of politicians, not to facilitate their rise, not to be in cahoots with extremism because it's part of a business model. You feed off racism and division. And, and do you think that's what's happening right now? I think, uh, I think the evidence is clear that this is what's happening. Um, what, what journalists need to do is subject noxious ideas to rigorous scrutiny and to do so responsible manner, which doesn't permit extremism to enjoy a free platform. Now, I, I think we can focus on Pauline Hanson, but there are many other examples that I can point to. I think of Blair Cottrell, leader of the United Patriots Front, uh, someone who has a long history of criminal offences, including breach of Victorian Racial and Religious Tolerance Act. You've had some commercial television news segments giving him a platform without highlighting such a history to, to play cultural. Now, 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 I'm not suggesting that media outlets can't interview someone like Blair Cottrell, but if they're going to do it, they've got to do it in a way which allows for citizens to be informed and to know exactly who's, you know, who, who the person is that they're hearing these ideas from. Instead, you've had media outlets describe him as a concerned citizen, as a, a leader of um, a neighbourhood watch-like group, is concerned about African crime. Um, now, if, if, journalists, if, if journalists were doing their job in that particular instance, I think they should be mentioning the criminal history of, of this fellow. I think they should be mentioning where his politics has come from. It's just describing him as a concerned citizen who leads an organisation similar to Neighbourhood Watch sanitises extremism and normalises hate. Now, even some of our best journalists, some of those regarded as among our best journalists, have sometimes erred in how they've covered issues around race. I, I thought it was, I, I, I thought it was poor judgment. For example, Steve Bannon to be given 
are largely benign interview where he was not subjected to the scrutiny that we would have expected a figure associated with the alt-right and advocacy for a white ethno state in the to have enjoyed. Rather, we had an interview on where the interviewer, in fact, went out of her way to assure Steve Bannon that he was not a racist. Also posted social media a photo of her standing alongside Steve Bannon in a friendly manner. Now, had a journalist been interviewing a Holocaust denier, Victor terrorist, a pedophile, would that journalist have posed for a friendly photo with such a figure and boasted about it on social media? Well, why then is there an exception for white supremacy? Why is there an exception for far-right extremists? Why do we carve out space for giving extremism of this kind free time when we don't give other forms of extremism free time and don't do so for good reason? I think most reasonable people understand that you don't give free time terrorists, equal time to terrorists, to pedophiles, because that does damage, would do harm to our society. Well, parts of our media need to wake up, realize that giving a soft platform to white supremacists also does harm to people in our society. Before we um, open up for questions, there's a, there's a big part of what's in the book and, and your, your professional life, Tim, that we haven't talked about, which is your time as the Race Discrimination Commissioner. And, and you and Danny both mentioned in what, you know, what could be argued the depoliticization of the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination by calling it Harmony Day in Australia. What you reminded me of in your book, but forgotten about even though it was only last year, was that there were proposals floated by the current Attorney General, Christian Porter, to change the name of the Race Discrimination Commissioner, including to potentially the Community Relations Minister or the Community Harmony Minister. Commissioner. Commissioner, Commissioner, sorry. Community Harmony Commissioner. I wonder whether that alongside the Harmony Days, what do you think that says about Australia's willingness or at least certain sections of the political community's willingness to talk about racism? It's very clear what it says says that there are some in our political class who don't want us about racism, threatened by anti-racism. Christian Porter, when he floated that idea, argued that the work of anti-racism was divisive, that it did not, not sit necessarily well with mainstream Australia. Now, I think along with many people read or heard those comments, I found in that an implication that people from racial minority backgrounds in Australia weren't considered part of mainstream Australia. And I think that's a revealing implication to have enjoyed from or to have for us to have received our first legal officer in this country. And we and, and, you know, the, the suggestion that the Office of Racial, Race Discrimination Commissioner be renamed to something like the Harmony Commission or the Relations Commissioner, that, that didn't get up because we were emphatic. Community groups and I 
were, were absolutely livid um, that this was the, was the suggestion. Uh, as though talking about racial discrimination somehow was divisive. Well, talking about it isn't divisive. Responding to it isn't divisive. Conducting it, uh, 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 perpetrating it is divisive. And this is a false equivalence that has emerged in our public discourse now. We've got to a situation where people believe that it's racism on the one hand and anti-racism on the other, but that they both have the same equal moral weight. They don't have same moral weight. They may be on different sides of a political contest, anti-racism and racism. If you're putting them on a moral scale, they don't weigh up the same way. But unfortunately, those ideas taken root and it's been encouraged by, by the likes of Christian Porter and others who have made, made suggestions of the type you referred to. Um, but let's, let's be clear about why they made that suggestion. They tried on two occasions to change the Racial Discrimination Act and they did not succeed. So therefore, they turned their attention to hobbling statutory office attached to the Racial Discrimination Act. It's the only way they could have changed the title of that office was to change the Racial Discrimination Act itself. Now, this was, in my reading, an attempt to get back into a debate about the Racial Discrimination Act, try and smuggle in another amendment to 18C. Um, and if that didn't work, then they could have got the second best option of at least hobbling the Office of Race Discrimination Commissioner. And I think this is what we're dealing with here, dealing with embedded hostility against anti-racism and non-discrimination. It's hostility that's deeply troubling to me. So I believe there's an important role legislation to play for the integrity of Australian Human Rights Commission to be. 2013, when you took up the role, you've just listed a whole swathe of things that were quite intense political battles that you were either a target of or quite intimately involved in on one side. Is that what you expected your role to be dominated by these two attempts to change the Racial Discrimination Act, discussions around whether your office had too much funding, the rise of white nationalism, proposals to change the name. Did you know that you were getting yourself into that? What, and, and if that wasn't what you thought you were getting yourself into, what did you think the job was going to be? Well, if we go back to 2013, I, I was pretty explicit in outlining some of the areas I, I thought were going to be major areas of focus for me. So there was number one, protecting the Racial Discrimination Act and making sure that the legislation still had integrity people still enjoyed effective protections against racial hatred. Um, but I also spoke about the need for generational change in our attitudes on racism, in particular dealing with subtle and casual forms of racism in our, in our national life. And, and the third area that, that I nominated is around improving the representation of ethnic and cultural diversity in our public institutions, especially in senior leadership. Um, but those were the three areas that, that I thought I was going to, to tackle. Um, and if we go back now and look at how we fared on those three, three 
things. I mean, it's clear that I spent a lot of time talking about the Racial Discrimination Act and trying to defend it against two attempts of legislative amendment um, and also defending the office itself from potential change. Um, I think on cultural diversity and leadership, we were able to start a conversation within Australia about that. and conducted research. We gathered some data. Some of it was done in partnership with University of Sydney here, and particularly business school here. Um, but if I think about the cultural change and the generational change in attitudes, uh, I think it's very clear to me that we, we didn't really make progress mm. on that. And and I, I want to ask a bit more about that because yep. obviously your term almost mirrors the rise of a lot of these things. And not at all for a second am I suggesting that it's your fault or the, <laughs> the fault of the commission. But do you think that there are things that you could have done differently or the way, the way that you could have, do, do you wish maybe that you'd belled the cat earlier, for example? I wonder whether you think that if you could, knowing what you know now, if you could go back, what would you have changed about? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have changed anything fundamentally. And, and the, the, brutal, the brutal reality of the job that I had was that it was a defensive job. This was a defensive role. Um, you, it was very difficult to try and move forward and set the agenda because, frankly, uh, there were attacks coming our way. So we had to defend. And the job for me was to, if, if it was about um, belling the cat, uh, me, that was about telling all of communities in this country about what was coming up on the agenda, change to the Racial Discrimination Act. When I, when I started in 2013, there weren't that many people who were aware of this issue. Many communities had no idea that the government was entertaining this. Only a certain circle closely tuned with federal politics or closely following the debates published on the pages of The Australian knew that this was on the agenda. But the people who were going to be most directly affected by this, Aboriginal communities, ethnic and multicultural, they didn't have any general awareness this was necessarily on the horizon. So, uh, so I think that was part of, part of the job. Um, I always tried to do the job in the spirit of, of independence and without fear or favour. Um, and uh, I, I would like to think that my record reflected that, that you know, had plenty of fights and stouches with federal government um, but I also was prepared to call out racism across the political spectrum. I mean, you know, four, four years ago during the New South Wales state election, I spoke out about anti-Chinese sentiments at the time and being expressed by the Labor side of politics. This week, I've openly spoken about Michael Daly's comments about, about people in, you know, about um, people in Sydney potentially losing jobs to Asians with PhDs. I've spoken um, out about that, um, even though some media outlets uh, may not have uh, necessarily understood it um, or even realised it. Um, uh, so, so I'd like to think that I was always independent and did it without fear or favour. Um, but, you know, you always, you always reflect on, on something like this and you always think, well, maybe there could have been a bit more that I could have done. Maybe there could have been something else that we could have got started. 
maybe maybe there could have been more time spent traveling around the country, particularly to non-metropolitan areas. It's fair to say that a lot of my time was spent between Sydney, Melbourne and Canada. Um, I didn't get the opportunity to go to different parts of the, the country in the way that I would have expected. Part of that was because I had a pretty limited budget uh, and I couldn't do more than a handful of trips to the Northern Territory or Western Australia every year because of the distance and the cost. And th- those are the things you, uh, you think about. But on, on the fundamentals, I, I sleep pretty easily. Fundamentals, I, I, think, I, I think we did the right thing. May, may well have been critics or criticism, but um, that's okay. Uh, public life, you've got to be subject to criticism and I'll, and I'll weigh the criticism. There's a few more things I want to explore with you, but I think it's time to, maybe I think Lisa from the Sydney Policy Lab is going to say some final words. Good evening, everyone. My name is Lisa. I run operations and engagement at the Sydney Policy Lab. Before I tell you a little bit about the Policy Lab, I just want to take a quick moment um, to thank Tim and Osman for being here tonight. Um, Because they speak about this publicly all the time, it's easy to forget that showing up, having these conversations, and sharing these stories and experiences really takes a lot of guts, bravery, and vulnerability and resilience. Um, And the recent hounding of Osman online again is despicable beyond words. So again, I just want to thank you both for being here and for sharing tonight. So the Sydney Policy Lab is a place where researchers come together with policymakers, with campaigners, with lots of other people in our community, private sector. um, And through that, we try to bring them together to crack really difficult uh, policy problems and to also bring new voices in the policymaking process. Last Friday, um, the team, uh, we were across our building and the road, still buzzing from the climate march, um, when the day suddenly turned a pitch dark corner, Christchurch. Like many other people, uh, we turned to the media and to Twitter um, to figure out what had happened and what was going on. And I am going to quote a few people here and share statements from others because they live this on a daily basis and quite frankly, their words are better than mine. Starting with you, Osman. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. You tweeted, I feel so sad. We begged you to stop amplifying and normalizing hatred and racism, but you told us we were politically correct and that freedom of speech was more important. The more you gave the far right a platform, the more powerful they got. Then there was also a letter to our leaders from a Muslim woman who wrote anonymously first on Facebook and then The Guardian. And she wrote, I don't care what you call it. Racism, Islamophobia, xenophobia. Tonight, these terms are meaningless to me. They don't help me talk to my teenage children about these attacks as I try to make sense of why the country they're born into sometimes doesn't feel like home. Then she also wrote, and you should all read it. It's in The Guardian. In the coming days, the best of our society will come forward and stand in solidarity with Muslims because I have no doubt that we live in the best country on earth. 
shoulder to shoulder, we stand tr strong and not let this tragedy define our society. So at the lab, we've been thinking a lot about how to do that and what that looks like, standing shoulder to shoulder. And not just today or tomorrow, but in the long haul. And as Tim and Osman have told us, we absolutely need to keep our leaders, our political representatives, um, the media, law enforcement, and our institutions accountable for any racist and divisive rhetoric or for perpetuating structures underpinned by white supremacy. And here I would like to give a shout out to the Mosaic Network um, that was launched today for and by the staff at the university, um, and which represents the university's culturally and logistically uh, diverse staff uh, community. Uh, it's important and congratulations for getting it up. So keeping our institutions accountable is vital, um, but there's another crucial point. And that is that we need to keep ourselves accountable. Democracy is a practice and a skill. Tim often says, um, it doesn't have to be rocket times. Have a chat, extend the hand of friendship, say hello and smile to others so that they feel comfortable. Truly listen and challenge negative behavior. Uh, a Vietnamese, an amazing community leader um, said to me this week, Words of solidarity are meaningful. Actions of solidarity are necessary. And again, it goes beyond that. Because she also said, when one of us is hurting, we all hurt. And we cannot win when one of ours is under attack. And that echoes what uh, New, South New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern also said, they are us. This is your home and you should have been safe here. It is important that here in Australia, we truly feel that too. And that means that we all must, must put in the work. Again, democracy is a, is a skill and a practice. It demands that we come together and build relationships across diversity, especially in a world that relentlessly encourages us to be transactional with each other and where a lot of us live in our little, little bubbles. It demands that we take the time and effort to intentionally connect with people who come from different cultural, linguistic, um, and religious backgrounds. It demands that we learn to talk about race, even if it's uncomfortable. So let's recommit ourselves to each other. Let's, let's stand shoulder to shoulder perhaps even once a week with intention. I'm gonna wrap it up by one more quote from Osman uh, for one last time this evening. It has to start somewhere. It has to start sometime. What better place than here? And what better time than now? Actually from Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good too, no? See, keep learning. <laughs> um, so with that, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.